this is Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind with me, psychologist Professor Richard Wiseman. And me, science journalist Marnie Chesterton. This is the podcast where we delve into the psychology of everyday life and answer your questions about human behaviour. Expect fascinating facts, scintillating science, and this might even improve your life. In this episode, we're talking about the Apollo space mission and the psychological lessons we can all learn from it. How does passion motivate us? What is charisma? What are the secrets to success? And how do you fail successfully? Let's get on with the show. It started many, many years ago by chance, as most of my projects do, where I went to a party and uh, my very good friend, comedian Helen Keane, was there. Helen's done a whole series on space. Loves space, loves Apollo. And so we're chatting about Apollo and talking about all of the amazing tech and science that flowed from it. And I asked this question, which then changed the next sort of four years of my life, because I said that's all great in terms of the scientific advances, but what were the psychological advances that were uncovered by this incredible feat of getting to the moon when everyone thought it was pretty much impossible. And she said, I'm not really certain, but you should talk to my mate Craig. And I said, is Craig like head of NASA or something? And she said, no, 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 he's a welder from Wales, but he's absolutely uh, passionate about Apollo and he's befriended all of the Apollo controllers, the mission controllers that sat at the heart of everything. Helen said, maybe if you ask him nicely, he'll introduce you to them. You could interview them about uh, the psychology of uh, success and how they achieved what they achieved. And that's what I did. It was incredible. I spoke to them about this this amazing mindset that was in mission control. So I wasn't speaking to the astronauts where there's been lots and lots of research into what's called the right stuff, you know, that people are going to go up there and do scary things. This was about the mission controllers at the heart of the Apollo space program that essentially put somebody on the moon. And did you go over there? How, no, no, no. How old I, are these people now? They're amazing. So there's a whole backstory here. What I find incredible about them is that, in a sense, how unremarkable they all were. So the astronauts were heavily selected because they have to go out and do these very dangerous things and keep calm, put their lives on the line. The mission controllers were almost the opposite. They were a group of people that were often the first in their families to go to university often from a farming background. And and the reason for that is that Chris Craft, who put them all together, really wanted team players. He didn't want stars that wanted to be the centre of attention. Oh, so he he picked deliberately ordinary people. Uh, in a he sense. He was like, you, you're special, out. Uh, well, uh, well, yeah, because you don't want people in mission control who, <laughs> who suddenly want to be the star of everything. You need a team. People who are going to really try and work together and make this impossible fee actually happen. So they're quite ordinary in that sense, but quite extraordinary in what they achieved. And that's why I find it such an interesting area. OK, we've got a question here from Colin about success. And he wants to know, did NASA have a specific culture of success in place when recruiting? Or was success dependent on the people themselves who NASA selected? Was the organisational structure of NASA responsible for the psychology of success? Well, I spoke to one of the folks in charge in, of recruitment and they said it was really interesting. One of the things they selected on was passion was basically what they called the fire in the eyes. If this person walked through the door, they weren't too worried about their background. What they were worried about is they really, really wanted to do this thing. And this gets back all the way to Jeff Kay's amazing vision 
of putting somebody on the moon. So we, we should back step yeah, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me the origin story here. So the origin story is that the uh, Soviets put up uh, the Sputnik, and it's this kind of satellite going around the world, and it really spooks the Americans. JFK comes forward and says, OK, we need to do something that's really impressive. And so the scientists go, well, we could put our own satellite up. And he says, no, something even more amazing. They say, well, perhaps get a rocket to the moon. He says, no, more amazing. And they go, well, we could send somebody to the moon on a good day, bring them back safely. And he goes, that's the vision. And by the way, you've got until the end of the decade, around about eight years to do this thing. And it's pretty much impossible. But he is enormously charismatic. And he can really inspire a sense of passion. So I spoke to two people that were in the, the football stadium when he makes his famous speech about going to the moon. And both of them said, we just gave up what we were doing and we just decided to dedicate our lives, or at least the next decade, to doing this. And they said, if you were in, in, in the same space as him, it's just the most obvious thing to do because he just inspired you. This suddenly gave your life some kind of purpose. And, and what is that essence? Like, is that just something you innately have? Like, I, I feel like I've tried to get groups of people to do something less insane than go to the moon. <laughs> just, like, go to the... Let's go all, to the pub. Let's all go to the pub. Yes. And it's like, oh, well, Yes, before this decade sure. is out, we will go, <laughs> we to, the will go to the pub and safely return. And everyone's like, well, I'm quite busy. I mean, maybe the decade afterwards. Yes. But I know, I've got this gut feeling that if somebody else, you know, with the right speech had asked, <laughs> then yeah. maybe everyone would be like, yeah. No, let's do it. I, I think with Kennedy, everyone talks about him being extremely charismatic. And some of the research into that shows that what he's good at is spreading his emotion, his enthusiasm into groups of people, very large groups of people. In this case, 400,000 of them are involved in, in trying to get someone to the moon. And part of that is this vision, this big goal. This, if you can achieve this, you can be part of the team that changes history. And also, there's a big purpose you understand what it is you're doing, and more importantly, you understand why you're doing it. And I think purpose really matters. And for some of the mission controllers, it was about doing something which they hoped would you know, put America uh, onto the world stage. For others, it was just this scientific impossibility that they hoped to, uh, to be able to achieve. But I always think this notion of asking the question of why you're doing what you're doing is, is really important. You know, I, I can remember early on when I was working on a supermarket checkout, and it is that I was on seven items or less. Uh, and, and it's not the most interesting thing to be doing with your life, it has to be said. Until, and I may have spoken about this in a previous episode, until you realise there's an epidemic of loneliness out there, your interactions with some customers, there's the only person they're going to speak to all day. And so if you're cheerful and upbeat, it makes their day better. Otherwise, you drag them down. Now, suddenly, being on the checkout, has got purpose. You understand there's a way of having a, a benefit uh, of making the world a better place. And I think that was key to the Apollo success. The mission controllers were so passionate, they dedicated their lives to it because they understood why. And I always say to people that, you know, if you're in any kind of job at all or doing any kind of task, just asking yourself, how does it make the world a better place? Who's benefiting from what I'm doing instantly gives you a sense of purpose and normally motivates you. had another question here from Craig about the Apollo mission. No, we should is, say, is, this is, is the Craig. Craig. He's phenomenal. He's so passionate about Apollo. Craig here. What does Apollo tell us about coping with failure? 
So we should say that this was a very, very young group of people and they were incredibly optimistic. So at the time that um, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong walk on the moon, the average age of mission control is around about 27. That's towards the end of their, their journey. So they're in their early 20s when they were chosen. And Jerry Bostick, one of them, said to me, you know, we were so young, we didn't know it couldn't be done. And it's, I think it does speak to the power of that optimism. If, if you knew how impossible the task was, you'd have given up before you started. Right, right, right. So that these people so just believe they could do amount, it. a certain amount of ignorance is a... Yeah, a certain amount of, of belief, I would say, that, you know, yes, if, if we say we can't do it, that's it, we might as well just go home. So let's all just pretend we can, and it turns out they could. Along the way, though, you have got these setbacks, these quite serious setbacks. Things did go badly wrong. And this was years before work into what's now called the psychology of mindset, which is how you face those failures. And their response was always, one, we take responsibility. This is people's lives on the, the line here. So we have to be responsible. And two, we need to learn from these mistakes. We can't just go, oh, that was unfortunate, or it was somebody else's problem. In fact, the, the kind of culture at um, uh, amongst the mission controllers was if you blamed other people, you were out pretty quickly. Oh, that's interesting. So if you went, well, it was their fault. You know, it's always our fault. As a team, we messed up. What are we going to do differently? And I think, I mean, that was really interesting when I spoke to them. I've interviewed loads and loads of people uh, about success and luck over the years. I'm doing all these interviews with the mission controllers and I couldn't figure out what was bugging me. All I knew was that something was different. And so I then looked over the interviews. I thought, oh, my goodness, the word I isn't here. It is we for everything. They never use the I word. That's, we did that, this. That's quite classic in science as well, though. Yeah, yeah. I, I just wonder sometimes if there's going to be more ownership of sort of personalising it if there is just I did this. You know, I hope not because everything's a we. Mm. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Fred Rogers, American, uh, who did... Um, all these wonderful shows and inspiring children uh, to, to be kind to one another. And those shows were award-winning. And when he picked up the award, he always did one thing, which everyone does, which is to thank everyone involved in producing it. But then he did this astonishing thing, which he would say to an audience, which is often an audience of celebs and media folks, you know, let's spend 60 seconds in silence thinking about the people that have loved you all into existence. All the parents, your teachers, your caregivers, your friends that are responsible for you being here today. And I think it's a brilliant exercise to think, you know, it's never I. There's always a group of people behind me that helped me get to this point. It really is always we. And that's what it was like in, in Mission Control. Everything was we. We're going to learn from it. And often they would always urge me to talk to somebody else. They'd always go, oh, you should speak to so-and-so. Yeah. They're the ones that are the real hero of, of all this. And, and that's, looking back on the transcripts, that's what I realised was so different. I think now we're kind of encouraged to use the I word quite a lot, but ourselves at the centre of everything. And, and when it's successful, we take credit for that. When it's not, we quickly push it on and it's everybody else's fault. That really was not the mindset in mission control. So, so failure really mattered to them. It's how they learned. And in fact, I mentioned this before in lots of other episodes. I'm a huge Dale Carnegie fan, the person that wrote How to Win Friends and Influence People. And I read his biography recently, and he had this great exercise, which he had a, a book, which on the front of it just said, stupid things that I've done today. 
And every day he'd write down the things that he wished he hadn't done, the things he wished he hadn't said, and what the learnings were from that. Do you do that? Yeah. It's a huge book by my bedside. <laughs> it's running into like 30 <laughs> volumes now. That's, that's only the last just, week. Yay. <laughs> no, I, I think it's, it's helpful to personally reflect on those things and, and go, you know, I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I'd counted to 10 before I said that or whatever it is. Because there is this culture, as I say, of ignoring our mistakes, of blaming other people. And actually, that's how you learn. So the Apollo mission controllers were doing what we'd now call mindset work years before that was a, a phrase or an idea. And where did that work go? Like that, that culture, that did that spread to other workplace cultures? I'm, I'm not certain that it did. I think this was a group of people that were quite humble, that were team players, that were used to solving problems. I mean, if, if you've got a farming background, you need to solve a practical problem and work with other people very, very quickly and were extremely passionate. So, in fact, one of the problems was keeping them away from mission control because they all wanted to be there and, and they would suffer burnout and, and, and so on. So I think it was a, a unique moment that allowed us to do something which even today looking back was seen as pretty much impossible certainly at the time and that we could learn from that rather than just going oh that was great and now let's just move on i think it's really interesting when you're you're talking about a team when it's an atmosphere that so easily could be hierarchical because there is a different mindset there and I was thinking when you were talking about owning mistakes, that there's another industry where it's a life or death situation and, and that's flying planes. And and so there's a real culture there of if you notice any mistakes, you mention them and it doesn't matter whether you're the pilot or whether you're, I don't know, serving the coffee. Um, it's important to flag up anything that goes wrong and and everyone kind of owns that and learns from that. And it was uh, I was really interested to learn that in operations, they realised that there was too much hierarchy. So nurses were noticing stuff going wrong, but n didn't want to didn't want to tell the surgeon because the surgeon probably knows better. And then then they looked over at what the um, the aeroplane industry was doing, learnt from it and then decided to have less hierarchy and more team and um, death rates went down. Yeah, I think it's, it's a very good learning, isn't it? Certainly within mission control, everyone was given that responsibility. They just needed to do their job properly. This famous phrase, you know, it won't fail because of me. And also they were given responsibility and they were incredibly young. I mean, the, the idea of going, you know, we're going to spend all this, this or billions of dollars, this is going to be something that really matters to the country, possibly the future of the world. Who do we put in this room? I know, a group of people in their early 20s. That, that's a phenomenal vision, and it worked out really well. And, and part of that is going, let's just give them the responsibility. Let's just let, let them get on with it, versus them being able to pass mistakes up the chain and therefore not feeling so responsible. So psychologically, I think it's fascinating. You're listening to Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind. And in this episode, we're talking about the Apollo mission. You've talked about failures and, you know, some of them are pretty horrific. It's death mm -hmm. and there's, there's no way around that. If you're setting up this mindset of you want people to do the impossible, how do you balance the optimism of let's keep sending people essentially on top of a massive bomb into space uh, versus the risks of what could go wrong, which is usually death. And, and, and many of them spoke about that. I, I think what they would say is the difference between 
taking risks, which you're going to have to do, this is a risky endeavour, versus being reckless, where you don't know what the risks are and you're just telling people to get on with it. And, and so risk-taking was very important to them. Being reckless was never in that, that room. Because I, I think it's very easy for us to be conservative and just to avoid any risk. And at one point, there was a kind of frustration that the, the kind of upper levels of administration were being overly risk-adverse. They just didn't want to press the green button and send that Saturn V up and then find out the whole thing explodes and it's all a complete disaster. And so one meeting, one of the mission controllers says to the group, look, do you want to go to the moon? And they go, yes. And there's this lovely phrase, which is, well, if you want to go to the moon, at some point, you have to go to the moon. <laughs> you have to stop talking about it and start doing it, even though that involves risk. Because there's also risk associated with not doing anything. And the biggest risk is you're not going to achieve anything. You're not going to go to the moon. That's right. And so the JFK thing of, you know, if we try, we might fail. But if we don't try, we're definitely going to fail. So I, I think that optimism and that bravery needs to push you forward. But you never need to be reckless. You should never go, I don't know what the risks are. I'm just going to give it a go. So it's, it's sort of informed decision making. Yeah, but... It just feels like you need someone who's got the mindset to see everything that could potentially go wrong, but also the mindset to go, yes, we can do this, which feels like two different mindsets. I think it is. I think we can live with that, that, that duality. No, it's you black can't. or white. <laughs> it's, it's one thing or the other. We're going to be optimistic like... or we're going to be pessimistic. <laughs> so my risk-averse friends tend to be the ones who are constantly noticing that, you know, that car might mount a pavement and run us over or it might rain so I've packed an umbrella even though it's the middle of summer and the weather mm. forecast says it's fine. They're also not the people who go, yeah, let's go and dance in the street or you mm. know, because they're of the things that might go wrong mindset. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think you need a balance. And within any team, it's quite helpful to have a mixture of, of people. And so this gets back to the, the fundamental conflict between is it better to be optimistic or pessimistic? And most of the evidence comes down towards optimism. For a while, it was argued there's a type of pessimism called defensive pessimism. Uh, and this was the idea uh, created by uh, Julie Nurem, a psychologist, that what defensive pessimists do is they, they're expecting the worst in order to be able to be prepared for it. And probably the most effective technique for that is called a pre-mortem as opposed to a post-mortem. So this is Gary Klein's idea that what you do, and I've used this many times for projects, you all sit around before you start the project. So let's imagine it's been a complete failure. We want nothing but pessimism in this room. My goodness, it all went terribly wrong. Why did it go wrong? And it gives people... I think permission to speak up and go, you know what, I've got concerns about this. I think this is our biggest risk, but I didn't want to mention it because it doesn't sound very optimistic to say that. And you go around the group, you think about all those things, and you prepare for them. Precisely what they did with the Apollo missions. They knew loads would go wrong, so they were simulating mission after mission after mission. It turns out on their very last simulation, they simulated a software uh, error, which was extremely unlikely to actually happen during a mission. They realised they weren't ready for it, they got themselves prepared, lo and behold, that's essentially the error that comes up on the actual landing. If they hadn't done that simulation, they wouldn't have been prepared for it. So, so this idea of being prepared, hoping for the best, being prepared uh, for what might go wrong is a good one, but it's always going to be striking that balance. Uh, and with the Apollo mission, they got it right. 
Richard, we've got a question from Delilah and Matilda who want to know, did the intensity of working in mission control have any effect on the controller's personal relationships? Well, it was interesting talking to them. When I was talking to them, they're in their late 70s, early 80s and, and, and so on. What's the divorce rate? That's what it comes down to, yeah, right? I didn't ask that question, surprisingly <laughs> enough. No. Okay. What was lovely about all of those interviews is when I started to talk to them at the very beginning, they sounded like older people. Five minutes in, they started to sound a little bit younger. Fifteen minutes in, they're in their early 20s. And they'd say, we'd do it all again, just like a drop of a hat. We'd be back there if there was another challenge like this. This was the greatest time of our lives. Yes, it was the most pressured. Yes, we were working so hard. And yes, sometimes their family relationships did suffer because of that. But they look back and this was a, a sense which they made the difference. And they had that enormous passion. So not one of them regretted it. And, and all of them went back and said, this, this was absolutely phenomenal. The other thing that they all learned to do was to communicate using the smallest number of words you needed to communicate, because obviously you have to communicate very quickly under those circumstances. And I got quite fascinated by this. And I said to one of them, was it true that you just always learn to use the smallest number of words possible? And they just went, yes. <laughs> and I thought that's a perfect answer. So they're often very short answers, very considered answers. But by the end of every interview, I thought, you know what? I totally trust you. If there's one person in the world where I put my life on the line and you are the other side of that line, you would be the person. I trust you to do the right thing to try and keep me alive. It was a very, very strange thing. They just came across as we are we're considered, we're careful, and we will do everything we can to get this right. And this is a this is a subset, though. You mentioned 400,000 people involved. Yeah, I didn't interview all of them. <laughs> this is your life's work. Um, no, this, so this is a subset of that 400,000. Do, do you know whether the, the larger group were all picked according to similar... No, I, I don't think so. I think this was, this, this was the mission controllers that yeah. sat at the heart of it. Uh, I did interview uh, Dixie Reinhardt, who was great. He's no longer with us, unfortunately. Great name. So he uh, was an engineer who created the gloves that Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, were wearing on the, the moon. And the reason why I interviewed him was it originally worked as a clown. And so because of my background in magic, I knew some people that knew him from his clowning days and so spoke to him. And thank goodness he only did the gloves because I thought if he'd done the boots as well... <laughs> that would have been a nice... Huge! <laughs> it's a massive step for mankind. <laughs> like the noses as well. Uh, and, and he was wonderful. Uh, and uh, he then went on afterwards, actually, to create unusual pinball machines. He became fascinated by pinball. I love pinball. I am a huge sort of um, pinball addict. And so uh, he created the pinball machine, which doesn't have a flat kind of playing field. It's an undulating playing field, uh, which is then sort of relates to forces and physics and things like that. So it's this very kind of um, creative engineer. And he's one of the very few people whose name is on the patent for the uh, Apollo spacesuits. What have we learned? We've talked about the power of passion. We've talked about the importance of understanding why you're doing what you're doing. Certainly about the impact of optimism. How to motivate people working on shopping tills. Absolutely. And the importance of learning from failure and the importance of using we instead of I and realising you are always, no matter what you do, you're always part of a team. You've taught me about the pre-mortem. Pre-mortem is I've, a lovely technique. I've never heard of before. I love that. And if you've got people who are naturally more pessimistic and more optimistic, 
those are different skills. As long as you've got a team, you've got all your bases covered. It's, it's that team thing that, that really matters. No matter, you know, you always think, oh, this is me doing it. Actually, it isn't. You're part of that bigger endeavor. And as, as Fred Rogers would say, there's groups of people that have loved you into existence. From Podomo and Telltale, this has been Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind. Hosted by Professor Richard Wiseman and Marnie Chesterton. Our producer is Kate White. The executive producers for Podomo are Jake Chudno and Matt White. And for Telltale are Rami Sabar and Jago Lee. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at WisemanPod. Where we'll be regularly asking you for questions for future episodes. You can also email us at WisemanPod at Podomo.com. And if you like this podcast, tell your friends, leave us a review. If you don't like it, tell your friends you did. Why should you be the only ones to suffer? Although it does help others find us. And don't forget to subscribe. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.